Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is Meredith Markworth Pollock. Her costumes have been all over my Pinterest page for over 10 years, so we are extremely excited that she said yes to being our guest on this show. Having worked on Dynasty, Reign, Heart of Dixie and more, this CW's Queen of Costume is here to talk about what it takes to become a costume designer and the ins and outs of the role. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this and, and giving up your time. Really appreciate it. So our, our whole mission for um, The Good Bad Bad is to really kind of educate people on the ins and outs of careers that aren't necessarily always put in the limelight. Like people know what an actor is and they know what a director is, but some of the other roles are just a bit more obtuse. So I think we want to start by really kind of just basics, right? So what does a costume designer do? Can you kind of summarize the role? Absolutely. And just to tap in on what you were saying, I mean, it took me years to even understand the role of a costume designer. It wasn't even on my radar. And when I was in in college and I was studying film theory, I was writing all these kind of analytical papers on on different kind of iconic films Mm. over the years. And one of the papers I did was on costumes, not necessarily by choice, but that was the assignment and the role that the costumes play in, in the film and in the, you know, the specific choices that were made by the costume designer. And that kind of just opened this whole world to me that I didn't really understand that there was, you know, at the, at the head of it, one person, and then a whole team that planned and dressed every single costume of every single person that crossed the screen, no matter if it was the lead or the background. And I think that's what people don't realize, or people don't even like acknowledge. I think for years before that, I just kind of thought, oh, maybe, yes, I'm sure there's someone that put some clothes on, but maybe the other people like dress themselves, you know, like you just didn't, it doesn't register, uh, which can be a good thing because it feels so organic when you're watching the film that the costumes that they're wearing make sense. Exactly. But to really strip it down and to really be, you know, kind of a basic understanding of what a costume designer does, a costume designer creates the look of the character's through their wardrobe Mm -hmm. and the costume designer and the whole costume and wardrobe team handle all of the pre-production through production through even post you know sometimes and that is first conceptualizing the look of the characters now sometimes that means doing illustrations sometimes that means doing a pinterest board it kind of depends on the project and the period then you're getting approvals from producers you know, and then it's executing whether that's just going out and, and shopping for the fittings or it's shopping the fabrics and figuring out who's going to be making each piece, whether apartment, whether you have it. Then once you've had a fitting with an actor and the costume has been finalized, you know, then those pieces go to the set team and the set and wardrobe truck team kind of handle the actual shooting of the garments, the cleaning, the continuity, making sure people are in the right costume for each scene, because as we all 
know, or maybe we don't and we're learning, you know, you don't shoot sequentially in film and TV, you're shooting scenes all over the place. So they may wear a costume in, you know, in one scene that shoots in March and then they're shooting so many other scenes and they, they don't wear that costume again till, till June. So someone's job is to make sure all these costumes are kept uh, in order, so to speak, and cleaned and, and kept in good condition. There's so many jobs within the industry, but that's, or within the, the specific field, but um, that's kind of the overall idea of what a costume designer does and a wardrobe team does. No, well done. That's, it, it, it is very extensive, isn't it? It's not, it's not so much just going to a wardrobe going, oh, that'll do, and then putting your character in. It's like, it starts with a whole analysis of the script, the characters and their journeys and, and kind of breaking it down from there. So do you kind of come on board when, when the script is in place or after that, before that? We come on board after the script is in place because we have to have the script to really conceptualize what we want to do. And also the script dictates all the costume changes too. So, you know, we work in hand with the writers, with the script coordinators to make sure that we know all the dates and times, like mm -hmm. all those little things you have to pay attention of like, what time is it in the day? Yeah. Oh, they just got home from work. Are they in their work clothes or did they change into their sweats at this mm -hmm. point? So you really, you really break down the script and the role of a wardrobe supervisor who's kind of, you can, kind of like a project manager, I would say. Mm -hmm. The supervisor is kind of handling the logistics of the department where the costume designer is handling the creatives of the department. Okay. Um, so the wardrobe supervisor breaks down the script and everyone, it's like, it's it's basically a, our Bible, but it's, it's called, you know, a costume breakdown. And it has every character with every change. You know, I'm working on a show right now where our two characters in one episode each have 23 outfits, you know, and that's just from one episode. So that's a lot. So those little things matter and everyone uses this breakdown, you know, the people on set use it. Um, even actors will ask us to look at it because then they have an idea of all the scenes that they're in. So um, it's a good, it's a good tool for us to have, but yeah, we definitely come in after the director's been hired, the, the scripts there, the producers are set, Usually they've hired the DP and the production designer, and then they hire the costume designer because we also need prep before they start yeah. shooting. So do you often get given a brief by say the producers or the production design, or are you given a fresh kind of clean slate more often than not? No, there's definitely, you know, a brief is kind of a good way of putting it. Um, and again, it's, every project is different, but when the director or the writer or the producers are coming to the table with a very clear idea of the tone mm -hmm. or the look of the film or show, that's, we're definitely included in that. Another example, um, I can't, I'm not really at liberty to talk about it quite yet, but the project I'm working on now, the creator and the director has a very specific palette that we have to stay in and he's given us a list of colors you know that are acceptable so and the production designer is working within that the dp is working within that and costumes are working within that mm -hmm. so that's a very specific kind of tonal look i've been on other projects like rain is a good example where the producers came when i was hired and said listen we know this is 
a period piece at 16th century Europe about Mary Queen of Scots, but we want it to look or have elements in it that look um, not necessarily contemporary, mm -hmm. but have its own kind of world created around it. And that yeah. being it does it does beautiful. have a modern twist, certainly. Totally. Yeah. So that was brought to like that wasn't my idea. Right. That was brought to the table before I was even hired. So then it was my job to figure out what that meant and how to execute it. Yeah, it's so, not like period gowns in denim. That's not what that means. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, every project is different and every one brings something else to the table. But um, especially, I think in contemporary shows, there's definitely less of a, of a preconceived idea that's brought to the table when it's, you know, period, it's such a specific niche, right? Mm -hmm. So contemporary is a little bit more of like an open idea to yeah. conceptualize. Let's say like take Heart of Dixie, right? You've got a contemporary setting and your, your protagonist is in contemporary clothing. Um, but then so many of the other characters love dressing up. Yeah. <laughs> with this kind of historical um, and period kind of elements, you know? Yeah. And I love that you noticed that, you know, we used a lot of like vintage ideas. And, and I think that all comes back to when you're conceptualizing the characters, right? So perfect example on Heart of Dixie was um, Lemon, Jamie King's character. And her idea was this kind of southern belle right and so we kind we really pulled on the vintage looks for her and kind of the almost like late 40s early 50s kind of even grace kelly like tones of it so i mean it it again it's like it's it's so exciting I've, i feel like i've been lucky to work on these projects that i'm able to do this it's not just suits and cop uniforms yeah. you know which nothing against that, but that's a costume designer's role too, is sometimes on the cop shows, you know, it's all uniforms. Yeah. So, but no, the, the, the shows you've worked on have very distinctive costume styles. And I mean, you, you'll know there's hundreds of Pinterest pages dedicated to like your costume designs alone. Um, mm, <laughs> I remember when I was doing research for another show, like, based on what I'm searching for, an image from something else I've worked on will pop up and I'm like, oh, maybe I can use that person, you know. No, definitely. So how do you develop somebody's character through their costume? Like if you've got a, a character written in front of you in a script, like what kind of things are you looking for to kind of help you build that, that costume? Um, that's a great question. And you know, it, within that too are, are just character story arches really that you have to think about, right? Mm -hmm. So I always say you really have to think long-term. If, if it's a film and you know the whole script, this is it, it's not gonna change, great. Then you can really, but when you're working on a series and you know, I'm, I'm mostly, I started my career on some films, but now I mostly do series. Yeah. Sometimes you have no idea what's coming, right? Yeah. So you, you have to think and you're always pulling and reach to the writers and trying to get information any way you can. Mm. But you have to think of like long character development and arches. So I think Mary from Rain is a good example because what I knew, well, I don't we all know how it ended for her. So, you know, eventually I'm like, yeah. okay, that she only makes it, you know 
gosh, I'm forgetting how old she was now. I think she was like 40 or somewhere around yeah. that. But eventually, if we started young with like these soft palette and, and soft textures and laces and really kind of feminine and fun and romantic, and then we kind of slowly um, moved her into some of the harder like leathers and darker colors and she was wearing more black and so that's something that you think about you know from the beginning and and when you're conceptualizing you're talking to the writers and they may not know every single story point but they can tell you you know oh by season four you know she's gonna be living in France and be on her second husband and this has all happened to her you know so yeah. you can kind of plan out the involvement right and in terms of, I guess, just like episode journeys. So say you've got a very soft, intimate moment versus like a hard, dramatic scene. Like, is it quite tricky with, say like stereotypes? So if you've got like a, a sexy scene where she should be like in a tight fitting red dress or something like that, is those kind of stereotypes, do you actively avoid those? Or do you kind of help use little elements of those to help build those moments? Well, that, gosh, your questions are just so um, <laughs> insightful. I love them. You know, on something like Dynasty, it was always a fine line of playing into it, leaning into the stereotype or like trying to avoid it. Um, so for example, with Liz Gillies, who plays Fallon, the mm -hmm. lead of Dynasty, um, you know, she's a very beautiful sensual woman and when she would have these scenes we would definitely lean into it and it was because it's it's a soap opera you yeah. know and it's campy so it was like there were scenes where she would come out in like a full leather bodice and we were just like this is what it is and kind of have a good laugh at it but that there is a part of me the feminist in me that also is like okay it's it's our responsibility to portray these these scenes accurately now maybe not on dynasty which is an over-the-top soap opera mm. but if um you're doing something more realistic and and a little bit grittier mm. then yeah like let's keep it let's keep it real and show everyone that sexy doesn't necessarily mean mm. a push-up bra and mm. a red thong you know mm. what I mean like sexy can be a t-shirt and yeah. some briefs you know yeah. <laughs> so she was always the most elegant gorgeous um costumes none of them were overtly sexual and yet she was stunning right. You definitely pull it off with with Fallon because she's like this very powerful, confident character, isn't she? So even if it wasn't a soap opera, it would work. Like she would wear it with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely some of her work looks. You know, we wanted it to be definitely aspirational for people who are watching, and the whole idea is, you know, that you're enjoying the costumes and they're there for your entertainment and fun some eye candy but also you know it is and I felt that her her wardrobe is definitely uh empowering in a lot of ways and showing her as a businesswoman who's can do whatever she wants really and it's not about the rules like she can show up in a suit one day she can show up being sexy at work and feeling good and that's fine too she could show up you know, in, I mean, not that we ever did this, but Fallon could wear her sweats and a sweatshirt. Although, you know, this was pre-COVID, so this, the sweatpants hadn't totally caught on yet. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is that as long as, as this character felt 
secure and you know inspired by her own self that she could do whatever she wanted do you ever find yourself you've you've designed a costume for someone on set you're like oh can I just nick that and put that in my own own wardrobe for that moment (laughs) oh I I mean I I want to all the time um but you know it's not really at the studio owns everything so we've created a look and then when they're wearing it on set and they're about to roll camera sometimes things all of a sudden you're like oh that I didn't I don't think I tied the blouse that way in the fitting or you know that worked when we tried it on two months ago but now that you're on set it doesn't fit well or oh my goodness we put you in a blue suit and you're standing in front of a blue wall that's not going to work so there are little adjustments that happen last minute all the time and that's why the costume designer really has to be there it's called establishing and anytime you have to think of it like anytime the camera is seeing the costume for the first time the costume designer needs to be there so it's not necessarily like the first time on the show we're seeing the costume because as i said we shoot out of order it's the first time the camera is seeing the costume first time it's being established in front of the camera and you know things happen all the time or you know, we'll put them in a blouse and then we go to shoot and the DP says, oh, the blouse is strobing, which means like it's, it's moving. So sometimes when you put something, if you're, if you're wearing stripes, Mm. for example, and they, you know, to our eye, they look fine. But when you put it in front of a camera, have you ever seen when it's like the stripes are moving? Yeah. So that's called strobing. So things like that, that happen, you have to really think about certain elements or sometimes if you wear bright white, it blows out like on camera. So you can't do that. So, I mean, there's, there's so many little details that until it's in front of the camera being shot, you're not always hundred percent sure how it's going to look. Of course, with the experience, you, you know, to avoid certain things, like you don't want to do crazy loud prints all the time because it can be really distracting um, unless that's what you want for that character you know so all those little things kind of add up and that's why we we, I have to be there on set um, when something's being established I guess those little tidbits of knowledge are so helpful for someone just starting out they're like oh god no stripes no yeah (laughs) yep I mean, you can use like a thick stripe, but like a really thin stripe or like a really, really thin um, check print or plaid. Those are usually not good either. I love that. Yeah. So (laughs) when, I mean, I know it will differ on different shows, but how do you go about sourcing the costumes? So I'll give you two examples Um, from Rain, which was a period show and we made almost everything. The first season we rented quite a bit um, from different costume houses in Europe because we had nothing we were starting out we had no stock but then as the show kept going and the producers we shot we shot rain in Toronto and they really wanted to spend the money in Canada for all of the tax benefits and they were saying well why you know we've spent almost all of our budget at these European costume houses and my answer was well that's they're the only costume houses that have 16th century Europe there's nowhere to go in North America that why would North America have 16th century Europe pieces except for the occasional you know Shakespeare parody it's not it's not here it's in Europe 
which is mostly where those shows would be would be filmed. Mm-hmm. So then we so they decided they wanted to make everything because they didn't want to spend the money on the rentals. They wanted to own it all. And we kept a whole team on that just cranked out of of cutters, of seamstresses, of breakdown artists, and we just made our stock. And so on a show like that, we had to source all of our fabric. So most most came from Toronto. And then I had a, a fabric agent who was incredible. And she sourced all of our fabrics from Europe. So she would come in and show me a swatch, a swatch of fabric for the people that don't know is kind of just like a little piece of fabric. I'm holding up my hands. Like it's, it's usually, you know, I'd say half the size of your computer screen of your laptop, something like that. So you can really see the fabric. You can see how it moves. And then I would say, yay, you know, yay or nay. And she would order this fabric in for us. So on rain, it was mostly about the fabrics and then finding the cuts and the silhouettes that we liked and then figuring out who was going to make this because, you know, it takes a week or two to, you know, make a, make a piece depending on how intricate it is. So for example, the pieces that we were making for our lead characters, like Catherine Medici, Queen Elizabeth, Mary Queen of Scots, we made all of those in-house and by in-house, I mean, with the tailor and cutter and seamstresses that we had within our department mm-hmm. because I needed to be there to supervise those to yeah. make sure to, we, we needed them to be there to fit them on the actors but everything that we made for the background we kind of we outsourced within Toronto um, I think something similar I know something similar was just done on Bridgerton because I know the costume designer Ellen Mirajnik and I've listened to her stories and they did the same they built all the wardrobe for the background artists and they kind of sourced that out so when you're when you're doing a period piece like that you know that's kind of how you are getting all your stock in whether you're building it you're renting it and you're, you're talking to the producers of like, okay, well, I need to know how many background are we going to be seeing in a, in a scene, for example, of a scene where there's, there's a battle and they're on horseback. Every store in Atlanta knows us, um, and usually loves us because we would just come in and spend a ton of money. And, you know, you're usually you you do pulls. So to pull, because if you're just going in and, and let's say, you know, you have a fitting with Fallon and I need, six outfits for the episode for her. Well, to get six outfits, you need more than six outfits on the rack. You need, you know, like 25 outfits on the rack because we know that they're not all going to work, right? They may not fit. She may not like them. I may not like them. There's a million factors. Mm -hmm. So you have to over pull and then you keep what you use. So when I say pull, I mean, it's much easier to go into a store and say, Hey, I'm working on the show. I need to take all these clothes for a fitting rather than have me purchase $200,000 worth of clothes and then return $175,000 worth of clothes. Yeah. Let's take it out on memo. So that's what most stores do. They let you take pieces out on memo, knowing that you know, you're legit and you're, you're going to bring it back, you know, walk away with it. And of course they take your credit card information and all that stuff. Oh, no, it is. I I mean, I remember doing wardrobe for like small commercials and things in New York. And it's like, you're going to old Navy buying all this stuff and then bring it back and you just see their faces go, Oh, 
<laughs> oh yeah. They, they hate you. Oh yeah. I mean, it used to be, it's changed a bit. Like it depends on where you are. Like for, in Atlanta, for example, people would be so happy to have the business that they're like, oh my goodness, you're working on a TV show, you know? And then you go into LA or New York where they're used to this and they all, they, they deal with stylists all the time, returning stuff. And they're like, oh, your studio, you know, they're like so mad at you before you even open your mouth. So it, it totally, that was kind of a, a huge perk about working in Atlanta is like, they loved us there. And, and also you're just, you're, you just be honest. You walk into the store. I always would introduce myself and say, I'm a costume designer. I'm working on dynasty. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be purchasing stuff and I'm going to need to return stuff. I want to make that very clear, you know? So yeah. So you get in peace and on something too, like dynasty, it was a lot of online shopping too, because when you need these high fashion pieces, mm-hmm. Atlanta I love Atlanta, not exactly known to be a a fashion Mecca. There's only so much that's in the stores. So I would have to order massive orders on, you know, Net-A-Porter, Moda Operandi, you know, ASOS, like wherever you could get in the quantity that you needed. With such a big show like Dynasty, known for its kind of fashion pieces and same with Gossip Girl, like do do you have brands who are almost pitching you their work at the same time? Oh, Oh, all the time, all the time. Definitely. I mean, on Gossip Girl, there was tons and tons and tons. Um, and then, but and that was like pre-social media. Mm-hmm. And then, and now on Dynasty and on a lot of contemporary shows, people just use Instagram and they just reach out and they're like, we want to send you stuff. We want to send you stuff. It's become such a nice tool actually for the industry. Um, I've, I find it really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Also giving credit to designers that you've used that maybe are smaller designers, you know, of course there's the Gucci's and the Prada's, they don't need any press. They could care less if we were using their brand on the show, but there are the smaller design uh, designers like Galvan, for example, was one that we used on Dynasty to get credit and to get an image for some of these designers that are just starting out. It's huge for them. So I, I really love it. No, definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's the same with music on TV shows. You hear a track and then suddenly a career is launched, isn't it? It's it's a great, it must, it must be a great um, a feeling to be able to kind of empower some new designers like that. It is, you know, and we were on Dynasty, we really, we really leaned into a lot of African designers, specifically from Nigeria, because Sam Adagoki, who um, is on the show, his character, Jeff Colby, was half Nigerian, but he, Sam Adagoki himself is from Nigeria. And yeah. He came to me and was like, let's, let's do this. Like there's so many incredible designers in Africa and in Nigeria. So we did, and there were so, so many instances where we would use a piece for these people that like, it, it it was just huge for them, you know? So that it really, it's such a nice feeling when you know that you're um, helping out someone to get some exposure, but also just these little mom and pop shops sometimes that I would go into and buy um, in Atlanta. It didn't happen as much in Toronto. There was a lot of like vintage uh, vintage stores and vintage jewelry collectors. And we would buy pieces from them. And I mean, I remember this one vintage store in Toronto and I went in there and I spent maybe like, I don't know, $4,000, something that on the show wasn't that significant Mm -hmm. within our budget, but to this woman who owned the store, she started crying Mm -hmm. to me and was like, 
you just made my month. I'm going to be able to like go to dinner and like keep my store open. And I started crying. I just met her. She ended up becoming a friend of mine. I'm going to cry now. And I was like, oh my God, like this is, you know, the, the, those moments it was, it was just eye-opening for me that like, I'm able to help people through this work in a way that I, I never had even thought of. And there is a bit of a responsibility with designers to kind of be resourceful in that way. Like we have this budget that yes, you're not going to go blow money at a store just to support like someone you, you, it needs to be correct and what you're looking for. But, you know, I think like, oh, we could go support a local person or we could find it on Amazon, you know? And it's like, you're going to go support a local store. Yeah. So those little things uh, definitely add up and kind of are a nice little perk about the job. Definitely. And just, just because you mentioned it a couple of times um, in terms of working with the actors about um, helping choose their costumes, do you, do you really collaborate with the actors or, or do you kind of remain firm on, on what you feel like the costume should be? It's such a collaboration. And I think that's one thing that people really don't realize. And I remember so many times kind of explaining my job to friends or peers or family. And they would say, wait, the actors like get to say something about the costumes. And I would just kind of like roll my eyes a little bit because yes, (laughs) yes, they do, you know, for better or worse. But I mean, ultimately the, the actor is there to create the character. Let's say you had an idea that for this party this person with this character was going to wear a pink dress and you get in 15 pink dresses and they come into their fitting and they say oh I had really thought she would be in a black suit here you know so um it that doesn't always happen but it does sometimes and you have to it's always a collaboration and you have to compromise it's part of our job is making sure we're all on the same page. Now I could say, oh, well, you know what? The writer, the director, the producers, we've had all of these conversations already that it has to be a pink dress and it has to be a pink dress because later on when you get in the red car, they wanted to, you know, and you have a reason. Or you could say, oh, I hadn't thought about a black suit. Okay, I'll get some in, you know, it, it, it really depends. There's so many factors depends on the the show it depends on the scene it depends on the actor it depends on the producers the you know the director what they want so um you're kind of taking it all in and kind of you know so much of this job is also kind of a lesson in psychology (laughs) and I always joke about that but I mean it is it's learning how to read the room read what you know the actor wants what the producer wants and you're kind of many times those are conflicting ideas and it's our job to to kind of get everyone to meet in the middle somehow uh so it's 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 not always so straightforward as like here's this pink dress put it on it's it's not like that there's there's so many variables that go into it have have you got um I mean, I won't ask for specifics, but have there been those moments for you when you've really just had to go, okay, I'm not going to win this here. And you feel like the scene's kind of lesser because it's not, it's not gone in the direction you thought it would. Yes. I mean, yes, that definitely happens where I've really had a strong idea in my head and I've gone and executed it and it comes to the fitting and the actor wanted something different or 
put the outfit on, you know, that it happens too. puts the outfit on and, and it's not working. And you have to kind of recognize that too. We deal with so many egos in this, in this industry and, and something to have some humility and to be able to kind of check the ego at the door sometimes is so important. And that, and I will totally say that that's happened to me where I had a really strong idea I thought it was perfect. The actor puts it on, it's not working. And I have to say, you know what? It's not working. Let's shift and and pivot because I thought this was going to work and it's not. So uh, that definitely happens. And yes, there's been times where I had to kind of give in to um, not only from the actors, but maybe I had an idea and then the director didn't like it. Or maybe I had an idea and then all of a sudden the script changed and it moved from outside in the summer, you know, to buy the fireplace. And you're like, yeah. well, that's not going to work anymore. Or you have an idea. And then this kept happening on dynasty. I'd have an idea for a party look. And then they say, and then they jump in the pool in a cat fight, you know, and that means, and all, you know, all of a sudden that means, well, you're going to need three or four outfits because yeah. you're going to have a stuff double. They're going to get wet. They're going to go from dry to wet or wet to dry. Yeah. So the, the gown that the vintage, you know, couture gown that I had in mind, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. I have to shift and pivot and find think about light materials. And Oh, there's so so many when I say so many variables I mean it's like weather fits stunts pools getting wet blood ripping like you know all these scenario for a costume like what scene you go oh god why why do I have to do that to a costume I mean, on um, Dynasty, there were so many gowns that we had to like destroy with like blood and like, or like I said, getting in the, the pool or ripping. There was, there was a scene in, um, in the first season where Fallon's and having a love scene with Colhane and it's scripted like any rips open her skirt. And I was just like, oh, come on people. Like, you know, it's those things just always kill us slowly. <laughs> All those little things. I mean, we're so used to it now, yeah. but sometimes, you know, it was hard on dynasty finding multiples of gowns, so many couture gowns or even not even couture, but high-end gowns from these designers that you would want. It would be hard to find four size four gowns even sometimes. Sometimes you needed more. Sometimes we would need like eight depending on what the sequence was. And I remember like there was a Johanna Ortiz gown that Crystal wore at the end of season one. Mm black and white polka dot gown. It's one of my favorite pieces on the show. Mm. And we, I think we had six of them and it was so hard. We couldn't find all of them. And I think we, it, maybe when we started, we only needed two or three and we had them and we were good. And then they added on another bit to it. And we realized we needed three more. And we just, we had to order, you know, um, Natalie Kelly is like a size zero and we had to order like a size 12 and a size eight. These are, you know, US sizes um, and then cut them down to make it work. So you, you kind of do whatever, whatever you can do, but multiples and stunts are always really tricky because you need so many of the same thing. I don't even want to think about the costume budget for that show. <laughs> like that must be insane. Well, I mean, that's another factor that goes into all of this is the budget. Now we were so lucky on Dynasty. We had a really good budget and we could afford nice pieces, but I've been a heart of Dixie. We had no money, you know, and we had to be super creative about 
how we would make these people look the way we wanted them to without having a lot of money. So there's so many shows, you know, yes, there's the Game of Thrones and the Bridgertons that have more money than God behind them. But then there's Orange is the New Black, for example. I don't think she had a ton of money. I mean, yes, there was a lot of just prison jumpsuits, but she had a lot of big background scenes to to do and flashbacks. And, you know, so you just, you have to be creative. And that's why I always kind of appreciate some of the smaller shows that I know didn't have a ton of money that still pulled it off and yeah. made it looked really good. So like with Heart of Dixie, where did you source those costumes? Just going through um, thrift stores and that kind of thing? Well, we had a lot of people sent us stuff because we had Jamie King and Rachel Bielsen who were kind of two fashion icons. People sent us a lot of pieces for them. So we did use a lot of product placement. Mm -hmm. And then we were shooting at the Warner Brothers studios. Now Warner Brothers has this massive costume house. It's kind of on par. Well, I'd say Angels in London is kind of known as a big one, but they mostly have period stuff. And Warner Brothers has contemporary stuff because any show that's a Warner Brothers show or movie, when they wrap all the stuff, except, you know, sometimes they'll hang on to the costumes for the main actors in case they're a retrospective or they want to put it up in a movie theater or whatever but everything else will go back to the Warner Brothers costume house and that's how they make money they rent out the costumes so if you're a Warner Brothers show and you're shooting there on the lot like we were on Heart of Dixie you get free rentals so knowing that and it was so great because it was our offices were just upstairs you know and we would have a fitting and or we would need you know 12 green aprons for a restaurant scene and we would just run downstairs and grab 12 green aprons and run upstairs it made life very very Mm -hmm. easy for something like that now if you're on location or you're not by a costume house obviously it's going to be a little bit harder and you have to go run out in the real world or order them online so you know, you find, you, you just, you get creative and you, and you make a budget for every episode and you kind of allocate the money where it's needed. And, you know, for example, on Dynasty, when Fallon would have six changes in an episode and I know, okay, we're probably going to spend around $3,500, $4,000 on a change. That's eating up half of our budget. So when we have a day player, someone who's a day player is someone who come, an actor who comes in just for like one scene. I I don't want to spend money on them. I want to make sure we're pulling it from our own stock or we are going to the thrift store, depending on, you know, what it is you're looking for, or you're going to a cheaper store at the mall versus going to Saks or, or Neiman Marcus, you know? I guess it's harder with the bigger pieces, but with, with the smaller pieces, do you find yourself repurposing them quite a bit? Oh yeah. Yeah. I would always say, okay, we can repeat the shoes. We can repeat the pants, Mm. change up the upper half. Cause also TV, let's be honest. You usually just see from like the chest up. Right. So yes, you do get, you know, as a costume designer, you always want that full body shot um, to see the whole outfit. But the reality is most of TV are is close up. So Um, You want to make sure that is new and exciting. And then you repeat the lower half. I mean, that's kind of a rule, a general rule that we do a lot on TV. Talk to me about accessories, because accessories is something I will never understand. But do you find them quite important to your characters? Do you rely on accessories quite heavily or do you tend to 
kind of forget about those. Well, I mean, I learned from the master of accessories, I feel, Eric Damon, who was the costume designer on Gossip Girl. I mean, he was just like accessories, accessories, accessories. So when I assisted him, I really kind of learned the craft of that. And I feel like I took that to Heart of Dixie, to Rain, to Dynasty, so important. Um, this new show with the one I can't talk about quite yet, um, is like the antithesis of accessories. There's a couple pieces of jewelry, but it's very simple. And it's, I struggle because I'm so used to like earrings, mm -hmm. necklace, brooch, purse, like have this whole look. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's really, I've had to use kind of the other side of my brain to like really simplify and be like, no, it's not this crazy fashion show and this person doesn't need huge chandelier earrings that would make no sense and it would be really distracting so normally i'm a huge fan but i've also learned how to kind of be a little more uh humble with my accessory choices now the rings i, I never understand the rings they're always so annoying <laughs> <laughs> i love rings i mean i don't have all mine on today but it's also Totally depends on what you're doing. The, the show I'm on now is a little bit more grounded and a little bit more realistic than, than some of the past shows I've worked on. So we have like one ring that the character wears and she wears it all the time. I wear the same rings over and over. Whereas on Dynasty, we would change Fallon's rings with her rings would match her outfits. So they changed constantly. She probably ended up having you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rings because we would just constantly swap it out. So. Now they are, they are fake. They are fake gems, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. We can't afford the real deal. And also you don't want to give actors that responsibility because they, they lose them. They fall off their hands. They hand them to random people. They're, you know, they're sometimes they're messes. No, no offense to Liz. She's pretty good, but um, <laughs> you never want to give an actor. We did it once in the beginning of dynasty when we first started, there was a big moment of Crystal, Blake giving Crystal this diamond necklace. And I thought, well, it should be real. And I learned, I don't want to deal with that ever again, because we had security, we had to sign all this paperwork, we had to get, you know, it was like a huge to do. And she had a security guard standing on set watching over the necklace and it turned into like, it's like such a big production. I was like, I don't, this, it's not worth it. No one's going to know it's real except for me. So what's the point? And from then on, I just did fake. <laughs> you had to do it once. You just had to. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say is the difference between costume designing and styling someone? Um, another great question. And that those, those roles often get very blurred and people very often will say to me, oh, you, st she styled this. And um, it's a thing with, with costume designers, you know, we're like, no, we didn't style it. We designed it. We're a costume designer. But I mean, it, ultimately, right. Ultimately it's the same thing. You're putting clothes on people. You're creating a look, right. Mm -hmm. The difference is really 
for costume designers, you are, you know, a, a, a shoot could go on for 10 months, right? For a stylist who's doing an editorial or dressing someone for the red carpet, it's it's a really, or even a commercial, it's a really brief project. It's usually those don't last more than a, a couple of weeks max. So that's that's the first thing is the longevity of a project, which really makes a difference because all these big fashion houses and PR agencies, when they loan you a piece, they only want to loan it to you for a week, right? Because yeah. they want it back and they want to loan it to someone else for a week because then they're getting more exposure with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when they give it to you on a TV show and they hear that you need it for three months, people freak out and they're like, never mind. Um, so that's really tricky because you need it for so long on a show because you don't know the schedule. You may, like I said before, you may shoot one scene now and the net, the, the other part of the scene, you may shoot it in three months. So you need to hold on to that piece, right? The other difference really with character development in costume design, you're, you're thinking more long-term, right? And when you're styling something, it's just, yes, you may be creating a character, but it may, and it may be five or six looks for this character if you're doing a commercial or a photo shoot. But again, it's like, then it, and then it's done and you send everything back or you return or, you know, and then you move on to the next project where with the costume design, you're, you're having to ever evolve with that character and constantly be getting things in. So, um, and I'm not by any means saying that styling is less than I I do both, you know, and um, I know I've met friends that are really big stylists and that job is really, really hard too. It's just a little bit different. And, you know, I think the other thing with styling is you're representing the person often you're creating a character, but often for red carpet and stuff like that, you're representing this actor as themselves. Mm. And that's a big difference. Whereas in costume design, you're representing this actor as someone else. Mm -hmm. So those goals are quite different, right? So I love it. I have really fun. I have some personal styling clients. I style a lot of the actors that I work with for their events. Obviously in COVID times, it's all kind of calmed down a bit, but I really, I really enjoy it. Uh, But ultimately I'm a costume designer. That's what I'm going to say. Is it, is it the, the storytelling ultimately that kind of pulls, pulls you back to the storytelling it's the collaboration it's the longevity of projects Hmm. you know I think with styling you're often um it's maybe just you you and an assistant Hmm. maybe you have a bigger team if you're doing a commercial or you're you're building some pieces but in the wardrobe department like currently we have 20 people on our team so I I get to work with all these incredible people and I really enjoy that like Hmm. I feel like I thrive when I'm working on a team rather than just like myself. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love, I love some alone time, which I feel like I never get. So, yeah. but ultimately I like working with a big team. Yeah. Did, did you always know that costume was going to be the thing after you kind of discovered it in film school? Did you kind of settle on it quite quickly? I did, you know, I, it's almost like I knew before, but I just didn't, it didn't totally click because I loved fashion, but I never felt like I wanted to go into fashion. My grandmother was a fashion designer. I kind of, and my mother's an interior designer. So I, I always had this creative side of me, but I really loved film and I really thought uh, perhaps I'd be a director or a writer, which I actually took a moment to 
halfway into my career to explore, loved it, but came back to costumes because I, I thought ultimately that's where I belong. So it was always in me. It just took a moment to, to realize what that was. But once I started on my path and when I finished school, I moved to New York and I got an internship right away. Um, well, not right away. It took me a moment. I shouldn't say right away because it takes time to get in to do all this. Right. So I got an internship and um, I think right away I realized like, oh, this is, these are my people. This is where I belong. I want to do this. And, and I've kind of stayed on that, on that track. You, you mentioned you had a, a mentor at one time. Did they give you kind of any advice and uh, tidbits that you think you might pass on to someone else? I, I mean, I started out with this internship um, and then I kind of worked my way up, but I would say my real mentor, um, I, I didn't have a mentor in the sense, someone who I worked under who really guided me. Some people are really fortunate enough to have that in this industry. I just feel like I worked with so many incredible designers. I, I bounced around a lot. But I will say someone who I really valued his guidance was um, the cutter, the tailor cutter we had on Rain. Mm. He was from Quebec and he worked, he started out his career with Cirque du Soleil and just incredibly talented. And he really pushed me to always mix it up, to always change it, to always think outside the box. And you know, when you're building pieces and pieces after another, um, and you don't have a lot of time, it's so easy to just keep doing the same thing and yeah. change the fabric, right? And he really would push me, he would say, Meredith, you've done this before. Like, why bring me something new? And I'd be like, Michelle, I'm the designer. Like I get to choose, don't talk to, you know, if we had this like, and he would be like, I'm just, I'm just saying, I know you are better than this, you know? <laughs> and, and I, sometimes we would go at it and I'd be like, Michelle, I don't have time to like, think about something. I just need to make this quick, you know, but no, he, he taught me to always, always challenge yourself because you have it within you and always push to do something new and different and innovative. And that has really stuck with me. I take that with me now of like, don't just keep repeating yourself, keep it interesting you know so uh that's definitely the best advice I've been given and uh, across the years you're not necessarily educating yourself right at the beginning but have you found like methods and techniques to kind of keep updated with trends and that kind of thing like how are you pushing yourself forward and kind of your knowledge base as you move forward it comes through the actual work most of it right because you're always met with a new challenge or you're a new kind of build. I'm always learning about new fabrics, about new little ways to make things that you wouldn't normally make a garment like this, but for a TV, we need to do it this way. So I'm constantly learning from my peers. And I think you have to be open to that. And if you, as soon as you think you know it all and you're, you know, coming in high on your horse, then, then you're going to be boxed into this one little category or area. But if you approach it, like I, I learn something new every day at my work. And I'm so in awe of people who bring new ideas to the table. And in that regard, though, you still have to be find yourself being inspired. And I think social media, looking at 
fashion sites, looking at history. Um, you know, we can't be in museums right now, but looking at exhibits, like I always find those those things really inspiring to me and kind of keeping it interesting, keeping it constantly changing because we work, it's such a fast pace at work that you, you don't want to get kind of stagnant within the rhythm of everything. So you just, I, I really can't stress enough, like how open you, you need to be. And again, like humble and check the ego because as soon as you get too high with an idea or something like that you're I, I don't know I find that I'm constantly learning I'm constantly being proven wrong in a good way yeah so that's how, that's how I keep educating myself would um would you say it's necessary for a costume designer to to know about making quotes like to really know understand sewing to understand tailoring Yes, it is, but you also learn so much of it on, on the job. You know, I thought when I was starting my career that I had to go to fashion school. Well, I had already mentioned I studied film theory, yeah. so I didn't have those fashion skills. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to be so behind. I'm not going to, I don't know how to, to sketch or drape or do any of these things really. But as I started out you slowly learn them and I remember asking um this designer on one of my first projects do I need to go do I need to go back to school and she was like no don't waste your money like you know you'll learn it all here and I was like oh great yeah. and I did you know so I have learned so much of this I you know not only a little bit of being self-taught but also just paying attention paying attention to how the cutter is making patterns, paying attention how the seamstresses are choosing to sew to the pieces together, paying attention to the illustrator that I've hired on how he or she is doing the sketches. And I've taken little pieces of that with me. And am I a master sewer? No. Can I cut and drape? Absolutely not. Can I sketch a costume idea? Yes, I can do that. And you really should kind of be able to articulate that visual. But do you need to be able to do it all? No. Can I take a pair of tennis shoes and make them look like they've been owned for 10 years? Yes, I can't, you know. So I think you kind of dabble here and you dabble there. And so much of it is being on the job. And especially when you're starting out these lower jobs where you don't have a team of 20 to do it all. You have to do it all. So I've been on so many commercials, shows where I had to, to figure it out on my own and you just do, right? I figured out how to, I'm going to sew this hem. I'm going to um, buy a white t-shirt pink, you know, and you just go, you do it, you figure yeah. it out and you do it. So the skills are important, but they're not necessary. Yeah. Do you have um, maybe some suggestions of kind of what qualities might be as essential to being a costume designer? I think one of them you mentioned was just collaboration. Yeah, that's collaboration. Um, and I know I keep saying it, but I uh, having humility and, and humbleness also just for the, for the process. And I think for putting in the time that you need, you know, I've been doing this for 16 years. I didn't just all of a sudden become a costume designer. Yeah. And I think that that's what I've seen an issue with some of the younger people coming into the industry is we live in such a fast paced world now that it's like, Oh, I want to join the union and I'm going to do, you know, and then I'm going to be a costume designer and it's going to happen within a year. No, you know, it's having respect and appreciation for the process and is so important. And all the really strong costume designers that I know, 
started out from the bottom and worked their way up and they were shoppers and assistants. They were on set, they've done it all. And that makes them so much stronger because they've done every position and they know how it works. So I think that is incredibly important. Also just being really open to different ideas that makes you stronger. Yeah, it, it, it seems silly to me to close yourself off to the experiences of others around you and others' ideas, you know, it's, it's only going to make you better. <laughs> well, again, so much of that just comes down to ego. And I think a lot of people come in and they want to prove themselves and it's like my way. And it, it, I, I find that the, the people who I've worked for, and I've worked for some really incredible costume designers, the, the more open they were, the stronger they were. So, I mean, that's how, that's how I like to approach it. Of course, you need to hold, hold to your truths. And when you know something should be done a certain way or needs to look a certain way, then, you know, stick with that. Meredith, I've got one more question for you. Um, yes. If, if possible, can you kind of surmise what the good, bad and mad, crazy things about your job are? Let's see, the good. It is so creative and rewarding when you see your designs on television and you see them working in a way that's, you know, contributing to the story and the look of the show that there's nothing, it feels so good and you can be so proud of yourself and your team. Mm the bad uh you know we often in our industry give ourselves 110 percent to a project and that means sacrificing your time your self-worth sometimes your self-care you know we work 12 13 14 hours a day and i've seen you know many people have to kind of step away from their families to do work. I, I, myself included, I have two little girls and right now I've been working so much. It's really challenging because they don't get to see me that much. And it's, it's, it like breaks my heart. So that's the bad side I'd say of the industry. We're trying to change. We said we were going to change in COVID times, but I don't really see it changing. The mad, oh my God, every day is mad. And that's why I love it because you never know where the day is going to take you. And it's, I love change. I lo- I've always loved change. I always love uncertainty of like not knowing. Mm-hmm. If you don't appreciate that, I'd say don't, <laughs> don't go into the industry because I mean, it's like the, the crazy stories I have of, you know, being in Ireland, shooting at a castle and waiting for a FedEx package of a costume that came from Canada to arrive for the final scene, right when the sun was setting. And like, we had six people and all points of the castle because the delivery person got lost because we're in the back roads of Ireland, you know, and, you know, crazy wild stories like that. Or, you know, I was a shopper on a period piece that had a nineties rap scene. And I was like, in an SUV with a rapper and his entourage going around New York City shopping for these pieces. Like, you know, it's just wild. There's so many wild, amazing, incredible stories that I will always remember. And we all have these stories. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, I think we all have a little bit of that kind of mad wildness in us. And it's so nice to kind of get to 
lean into that on projects. Oh, 100%. It's, it's the best thing I think about the industry is kind of that little crazy side to, <laughs> that it brings out in everybody. <laughs> yep. Meredith, thank you so much for um, so honestly and so articulately telling us about, about your journey and your career. It's been so, so interesting to listen to. Thank you. I, I mean, I can't stress enough how wonderful your questions were and how interesting and specific. And, you know, I think we kind of can generalize a lot about our industry, but it's so nice to get into the real, the real gritty like details. So I appreciate you doing the work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.